scripture this morning is a brief verse about a very large subject. This is Paul writing uh, in the letter to Timothy, who is head of the church in Ephesus. 2 Timothy, the third chapter, verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. I have to tell you, it was a real surprise to me when I realized that Jesus figured out the Father's will pretty much the same way I would have to figure it out. I always thought that as the Son of God, Jesus was just directly uh, relying on that direct line. But when you look at Jesus, you see how often he turns to the Father in prayer. And when you look at Jesus, you see how often he is in the Scripture and teaching about the Scripture and talking about the Scripture. And so I realized that Jesus, in order to know God's will and do it, had to do two things. He had to pray frequently and he had to know the Word of God. And in fact, this helps explain an interesting verse. Jesus one time told his followers, he said, now look, they're going to arrest you. They're going to haul you in front of synagogues and they're going to haul you in front of rulers. But I don't want you to worry about what to say because the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. And I guess for years I just thought, well, magically, if I was in a tough situation, God would give me the right word. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But what I finally realized is, Jesus assumed that his followers were carrying on the same practices that he was. Namely, that they were so grounded in God's word that they had the Bible inside them so that when they were arrested, they would know just the right verses at just the right time to share with those who were oppressing them. And we all know stories. In fact, some of us, even in this room, know people who, as prisoners of war, whether in World War II or Korea or Vietnam, would share with you how the Bible kept them alive. But it wasn't a Bible they owned and read in their hands. It was a Bible that they had in their heart. And Jesus assumed and presumed this for his followers. When we talk about hearing the voice of God, I'm just here to tell you this morning, in, in somewhat uh, a long fashion perhaps, that the one place we always go, to hear God's voice and to get God's instruction is the Word of God. And it may seem obvious, but I want to remind you that Jesus himself assumed that the Bible was the authoritative Word of God. And I think if Jesus assumed that, believed it, and practiced it, then that's one of the reasons that we do that. It's very clear that Jesus, that the Bible for Jesus was God's Word. What is interesting to me, though, is that the Bible, of course, that Jesus has is what we call the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament. And I know from time to time people will tell me, well, I'm just a New Testament Christian. And I think that's very interesting because Jesus wasn't. Jesus was what we might call an Old Testament Christian, that that was his scripture, and he memorized a lot more of it than what we might have to memorize, and he lived by it. A few months ago, Matt passed on to you something I think I've shared with some of you in the past, and that is there was a, a teaching that was very prevalent in Jesus' day, that a great rabbi, a great teacher will do five things. And I want to share those five things with you this morning, and I think you'll see easily how Jesus does all these things. They said, first of all, a great rabbi will learn the text or learn the scripture. And we can see that in Jesus, that he obviously knows his Bible. In fact, we're told in Luke that when he's 12 years old, uh, he is going to Jerusalem to participate and that we assume help lead in the family celebration of Passover. 
Well, the rules of the day are pretty clear that you can, a child finally gets to the point that they can lead the family Passover celebration when one of two things has happened. Number one, they've hit 18 years old, or number two, they are 12 years old and they have the Bible memorized. How old is Jesus when he heads off to Jerusalem? He's 12. What does that tell you about what he's learned? He has learned the entire text. Jesus learned the Bible. Another thing that I would uh, that they would say, and I want you to know, is not only do you learn the text, but you live the text, or what we'd say, obey the text. And it's not enough to know what the Bible says, then you have to do it. And what we see in Jesus over and over is a man who tries to obey, and does obey perfectly, actually, everything that is in the Scripture. Uh, including when he gives the Sermon on the Mount, or Luke calls it the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, either one is fine because they both indicate an area that's pretty well devoid of crops. And the reason is this, that the Bible was clear and God's teaching was clear that you didn't go trample on somebody else's crop. So Jesus having thousands of people following him is not going to sit them down in the middle of somebody else's crop and teach them God's word. He's not going to break God's word while he's teaching God's word. And that's why he goes to this mount or this plain, this uh, lonely and, and deserted area to do his teaching. Jesus is a man who's going to keep the word of God. It helps explain that most interesting story about the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Do you remember her? One day Jesus walks by and she grabs, the Bible says, the hem of his garment. And I know our picture often, at least it used to be mine, is that she lunges for him and that's just all she can get is, is the corner of his robe. Well, there's a couple things you need to know about that. In the scripture, in the Torah, uh, Jewish men were commanded to put tassels called a seat seat on the corner of their robes. Now, how they figured out a corner on a robe is, is another story. But uh, and that was to signify that they were going to obey God's word. And then uh, it's interesting that the same word in Hebrew, because you know, words have to mean a, mean a couple different things, if not more, in Hebrew, because they, it's, it's, uh, it's a poor language. Uh, so the word for a corner where the tassel is, kanaf, is the same word for wings. And you may remember there's a prediction about the Messiah that he will rise with healing in his wings. We sing that every Christmas Eve, don't we? And so one of the things that they believed is when the Messiah came, he would obey God so perfectly that there would be healing in his tassels. And if you could just get a hold of his tassels, you would be healed. So what does the woman do? She's not lunging at Jesus, hoping to get a, a sandal or, or a belt or something. She's going for where the healing is. And that tells us two things. It tells us, A, she knew the Bible. B, it tells you that Jesus was obeying the Bible. I mean, have you ever seen those pictures of Jesus in your Sunday school book where he's wearing a robe? But you never picture him with the tassels. You, they always picture him as a disobedient Jew. That's not likely to happen, and that woman's not going to be healed. So Jesus uh, learns the Bible. He lives the Bible. The third thing is that you teach the Bible. Well, that's a slam dunk. When you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you realize that Jesus isn't making up all new stuff. He's taking their scripture, he's taking their sayings, and he's applying it in fresh, Holy Spirit-inspired ways. But it's still, uh, in a sense, their Bible. He is teaching the Word of God. Uh, one of the ways that uh, he would teach is uh, through something that would later be known as remez, which is a word for hint. Now, they didn't call it that back in Jesus' day, but in a sense, that's what he did. He knew the Bible so well, he assumed you knew the Bible so well, that all he had to do was give you just one part of the verse, and you could fill in the rest. And so he's going uh, to Jericho, 
which is a second home for a lot of priests. They're on duty in Jerusalem. When they're off duty, they go to Jericho. They like to climb it better. And so there are all these priests. And these priests and other people are very upset that Jesus is going to include this wee little man, Zacchaeus, who's a tax collector, in his company. To which Jesus responds, I have come to seek and save the lost. And we're told everybody wants to kill him. They're angry with him. Why is that? Because Jesus gave them just a short portion of Ezekiel 34, and they had it memorized. They knew the rest. And this is Ezekiel 34, where God says, you shepherds, you priests are doing such a lousy job that I'm going to have to come do it for you. I, God, am going to seek and save the lost sheep myself. Why were they angry? Because Jesus was telling them two things in the short sentence. He was telling them, you're not doing your job. And then he was telling them, I'm God. I'll do the job for you. And that made them angry. He was always obeying the text, but he was constantly teaching the text. The fourth thing that a great rabbi would do, they would say, besides um, learn the text, live the text, teach the text, is they would pray the text. I remember when I first learned this, and my first trip uh, to Jerusalem in 1999, we're there at the Western Wall, so I'm, I'm in line, you know, and, and getting ready to go to the wall, and I'm watching people at the wall, and they're praying, and they're praying, and some are kissing and touching. And so I turned to our leader, Ray Vanderland, and I said, what are, they, what are they praying? And he says to me, they're praying the text, they're praying the scripture. That, that's what Jews do. I'm like, okay, so it's my turn, and, and I freeze, and I go, now I lay me down to sleep. That's all I knew. That's all I could remember at that time. Uh, but they would pray. This is why James says that you can pray God's will. And you're going, how can I pray God's will? I don't even know God's will. James knew that you prayed the text back to God. And of course that's God's will when you're praying the, the Scripture. Uh, and so that um, Jesus is going to pray the text as well. And, the, and the, perhaps the most painful and difficult moment of his life He is there on the cross, and what does he do? He prays, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, yes, he's forsaken. Yes, he's carrying the pain of our sins. But you know what he's doing? He's praying the Scripture. That's Psalm 22. And if you know the rest of the Scripture, you can fill it out. And Jesus knew you could do this. Go to the end of Psalm 22, and it's even though you feel abandoned, you know that God will bring victory in the end, and I will praise you, it says, in the midst of the great congregation. Even in his pain, Jesus prays the scripture and prays in faith that this is going somewhere and it's going somewhere good. And then they, they said finally that not only would a, a great person of the text um, live, uh, learn the text, live the text, teach the text, pray the text. Then they said they'd actually die the text. When they're dying, they're so full of God's word that the last words that they utter will be from the word of God. And later after Jesus' day, uh, you probably know this from Rabbi Akiva, but it wouldn't have been Jesus' practice. But just after Jesus, a hundred years later, it became the practice, and it's still the practice this day, that when an Orthodox Jew dies, they want to be reciting the Shema as their very last words. But for Jesus, what were his last words? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's praying a psalm. He's quoting the Bible back to God as he dies. And this is what's so amazing. They said if you did these five things, then they said a great rabbi would then actually become the text. In other words, people would look at your life and they would see God and they'd see the very word of God. Now think about this for a moment. Do these five things, you become the text. His youngest disciple, a kid named John, watches him for these three years, grows up, writes about him under the Holy Spirit's influence. And this is what he says about Jesus in chapter 1. 
that in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the text. He saw all these five things in Jesus. He knew that he was watching the word of God in action. The Bible is authoritative. It is the one place we can always count on meeting God. And that's what Jesus found. Now, here's what I want to do the, the, the rest of the sermon. So you've got to work with me because I'm going to go fast and, and I'll probably be cutting some corners for you. But I want you to know that we live in a world where a lot of us and a lot of our friends sometimes have questions about the Scripture. And we think those questions trump what Jesus believed about the Scripture. And so uh, we sometimes think we can hold the Bible in less esteem or not give it a central place in our life as Jesus did because of of these objections. So I want to cite a few of them for you and and give you a few responses. The first thing is uh, sometimes... uh, People will say, isn't the Bible full of contradictions? And when I'm in a bad mood and they say that to me, I'll say, name some. And they're like, that's not the best answer. Uh, It is interesting to note that in the Old Testament, we're told there was a high priest during David's day when he took the holy bread and he ate it. And Jesus talks about it and he says, when Abiathar was high priest, David took the holy bread and ate it. You turn back to, to Samuel and you go, no, another guy is that. So either Jesus is misquoting and misremembering or Samuel has it wrong or it is possible, say some people, that Jesus is calling the high priest by the family name. So, for example, if you're talking about a sermon preached one time in Alma Heights, you could say when David McNitsky was pastor, but it didn't necessarily mean I preached it. It could have been Dinah or Donna. And you would still be considered correct in, in that. So that's possible, but there are not many contradictions, and you're going to have to look really hard uh, to see if you can find any. Uh, the second thing some type will protest, well, hasn't the Bible been wrong I mean, the Bible's been wrong about slavery. And my response is, really? Is the Bible wrong about slavery? Or were we, in our interpretation of the Bible, um, uh, 150 years ago or more? Because I think the Bible's pretty clear about how God feels about slavery. The central act and event of the entire Hebrew Bible is called the Exodus. And what does God do? God takes slaves and helps them become free. Don't tell me the Bible's in favor of slavery. Don't give me that. The Bible, God is always working toward freedom for God's people. Paul writes an entire letter called Philemon, and all he's doing is arguing uh, with Philemon, basically, using all his persuasive powers to say, you've got a slave there who's now a brother in Christ. He is free. You need to send him back to me free. His name is Onesimus. Uh, Now, you could point out, well, didn't, didn't Paul also say, obey your masters? Yes. One of the things we know that's pretty clear is that Christianity turned the values of Rome upside down. And one of the things in the turning the values upside down is that Paul did worry about the kind of witness that would make, how will we reach a Roman world if they think we are just subversive agents of chaos? And so one of the things he says is, you know, generally if you're a slave right now, it's probably a good idea to, to stay in order and obey your master, do the best job you can for your master as a witness to the master. And I would simply tell you, Paul's not asking the slave to be a slave. Paul is asking the slave to be a son or to be a daughter, to give service to Jesus by serving the person who right now is over them. That is not a blessing of slavery. That is a, that's an evangelistic concern about what we're going to do. But Paul says there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Uh, please don't come to me with this Bible is wrong on slavery 
Um, because that's not, that's not correct at all. The, the whole metaphor uh, Paul uses is that we are free from slavery and now we are heirs. We are sons and daughters of God. Um, God is not in favor of slavery. Well, they say, but, but Paul, was, he was a misogynist. He hated women. The Bible is wrong about women. Uh, he said, I don't permit women to teach. He did say that. And he said that in this very letter to Timothy. Now, here's what I, you're going to work with me. I'm going to go real fast. Timothy was pastor in a place called Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the major cities in the ancient world. And according to legend, it was founded by a group of Amazon women. And whether that was true or not, Ephesus' history was women always made up the city council and the mayor, the ruler, always a woman. So when Christianity uh, comes, Jewish Christianity comes to Ephesus, it is only natural that the women become the leaders of the church. There's a problem with that. Not that they are women. The problem is typically in Judeo, uh, in teaching, the women learned the Psalms and Ruth, and they conducted worship on Friday night in the house. So any of you know people that, that complain about Pastor Donna or Dinah leading worship? Just tell them Jesus was led in women by worship. That's, that's what they were trained to do. Not the temple, that was the priests, but they were training, they were leading in the worship. And, but that meant that they didn't receive in as extensive a training in, the, in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So what you have is apparently in Ephesus, women who are used to power, being in charge, taking charge of the church, and teaching out of what Paul calls their ignorance. Not because they're women, but because they're untrained. And he's simply saying, look, I don't permit untrained people to teach. He's got women leading. He's got Yodia and Syntyche and Philippi. He's got Lydia. He's got women leading, friends. But they're trained. They're trained, and he has trained them. And he's just telling Timothy, look, it's going to get out of control. So this text, which seems so heavy-handed, uh, rebuke, correcting, uh, uh, training, the reason Paul's heavy-handed here is he's dealing with Ephesus and things are out of control. They're believing some pretty crazy stuff. And he's saying, look, the only way we can straighten this out is through the Bible. Well, anyway, that's maybe a side journey, but the, the Bible's not been wrong. The Bible is not wrong. Usually when there's error, it's, it's our inability to understand the context or completely understand what God is after. But you might, I think, rightly argue, well, David, I've seen you on Sunday afternoons. I know that occasionally you eat cheeseburger and you mix dairy and the meat. Why aren't you keeping all the Old Testament laws? Well, there's a response to that besides I like cheeseburgers, but that, that doesn't hold up in, in God's court. Um, let me tell you just a few things. A third of the laws in the Old Testament are laws that have to do with the temple and tabernacle. Friends, we don't have temple and tabernacle in that form anymore. Uh, so a third of the laws we couldn't keep even if we wanted to. The other, a number of other laws had to do with ethnic identity because uh, if you look at the broad scope of what God is doing, N.T. Wright calls it five stages. Scott McKnight also calls it five stages. The great New Testament professors. But basically they say, you know, the world falls, so God... Uh, calls on the people of Israel to help put the world back together. So he's got to make them different from other people so other people can recognize they're different and can begin to be attracted by them. So he gives them dietary restrictions. He gives them certain ways that they're going to dress and certain ways they're going to behave to distinguish themselves from others. Well, as you know, they failed to do what God asked them to do. So finally, God sends the Messiah to take on Israel's responsibility, and Jesus is able to perfectly do what Israel could not do, but now the need for a distinction by, by diet and dress code 
among God's people has been subsumed into the need to be distinctive to being in Christ. And so that God now is doing something different in witnessing. So if we are not Jews, if we're not born uh, Jews, uh, those laws, the important thing are not those laws. The important thing is what is it to be in Christ. And, and I know that may seem like some gymnastics and you'll have to read into right further on that. But the thing is, usually what happens is the Bible's not wrong. Usually we don't quite get the context. We have not listened to the Holy Spirit. We have not listened to each other because all of them are required to um, go through the Bible and to interpret it uh, accurately. Uh, one, of, one of the things is that people say, well, you know, folks disagree on the Bible today anyway. They have their opinion, I have mine. Well, the quickest thing to say about that is God knew there would be disagreements. You know, there are some things God just didn't specify enough. Um, God did not seem to want automatons or Stepford wives. God seemed to want what I want, which is grown-up children who can figure out right from wrong and know what to do it and will continue to grow in the Word and in the Spirit and in the community to be able to do those things. So, for example, go put tassels on the corner of your robes. Well, how do I figure out my robe where corner is? God figures that they will struggle, pray, and they'll, they'll do it. So God, know, the rabbis called it arguing for the sake of heaven. And they would debate Scripture, not because Scripture wasn't God's word, but because it was God's word, and it was so important to get it right. But they knew that sometimes we've got to figure out in prayer and with the Holy Spirit and with each other what right looks like. So, for example, there is one that says this. If your son is basically recalcitrant, and as, they, as Israel started as a community, and your son is disobedient, your son is rebellious, take him to the, finally, you know, you've had enough, take him to the center of town and stone him. Well, I have three sons. I want to tell you they are all very much alive. And here's what you need to know. That as the rabbis wrestled and struggled with each generation what they meant, this is what they decided. And this was their best wisdom. I'm not telling you it's what you might have done with the Word of God. This is what they did. And this is what is enacted by Jesus' day. This is the word Jesus would have walked with. That your son not only has to be rebellious and recalcitrant or repeat offender, that you have to warn him and say, if you continue to do this, you could face the death penalty. But the third step is your son had to say, I know, and I'm going to do this anyway. Then the fourth one is mom and dad had to both agree to stone him. How long have you been married? I guarantee you mama ain't going for that one in our house. And the rabbis, but they wrestle with, that's what's so bizarre about the woman caught in adultery that they want to stone her. And Jesus puts a stop to it. It's because it's crazy. They, they've interpreted scripture to where they don't stone people, by and large. For the most part, that's what's so radical about trying to stone uh, Jesus uh, and trying to stone Paul. Well, in fact, they do stone Paul. It was such an aberration of what the community with the Holy Spirit had decided what God wanted. But my point is simply that it wasn't because it wasn't God's word or it's somehow all relative. It's because it is God's word and we want to get it exactly right. And we will give it our best mental and prayer energy to get this thing right. And so people disagree. Doesn't surprise me. They've been doing it for 3,000 years. But what counts is that we honor God's word as just that, the authoritative word of God, and that we honor God, the Holy Spirit, and each other as we try to figure out how to apply it. One of the things that they taught, 
and Jesus would have known this, is that the Bible has 70 faces. Every verse has 70 faces, which means its meanings are inexhaustible. Like my grandfather interpreted it and helped him in one way, and 50 years later I come to a particular issue and the Bible helps me with a slightly different issue. You know, my grandfather just really didn't have to mess with 410 at 5 o'clock. You know, just, and people cut in front of him. He didn't. I do. But there are Bible verses that train me and guide me and help me get there. So that we will spend all eternity figuring out new meanings that we had didn't even know were there. They had 70 faces. And sometime, and, and I'll bring this to a close, sometimes they knew scriptures might even argue with each other. See, we're Greeks, and we think there can only be one right answer. They're Hebrews, and they know sometimes there are two right answers, and you've got to figure out which one. So let, let's do this just as we close. There was a real debate. What, after love God with all your heart and soul and might, what's the second most important commandment? In Jesus' day, there are two candidates. Let me introduce you to candidate A. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Worship. Be pure when you come to worship. Don't be defiled. Be clean. Honor God with the best of your worship. Candidate B. Love your neighbor as yourself. Which is it? They're both in God's word. So somebody asked Jesus and says, you know, tell me about this. And Jesus basically said, well, you know, once upon a time, there's a guy going from Jericho to Jerusalem. And that's the road from where the priests work to where they go vacation and they go back to work. So if I'm on my way from vacation in Jericho back to work, I need to be there on time and I need to be clean ritually when I get there. And so there's a body in the middle of the road that's bleeding. If I touch that body, A, I'm unclean, B, I'm unable to deliver the sermon I've worked on, C, I won't make it on time. If I think the second most important commandment is to keep the Sabbath day holy and be there for worship, I'm going to walk around that wounded person and it's going to break my heart to do it. Then there's another guy, a Samaritan, and he thinks the second commandment is love your neighbors yourself. So there's a guy bleeding. It's like, hey, if I don't make it, it's okay. This is my highest duty after loving God, is to take care of this person. They realized that commandments could actually clash. And fortunately, Jesus did us a favor and told us which one of those he thought was the one that was most important. So it is possible that you and I, both in Christ, can have different scriptures weighing in on the same thing. And they might seem to oppose each other. And God's like, work it out. Pray. Study, engage each other. That's always been the formula for Scripture. It continues this day. And the beauty of it is this. When the Bible talks about itself, it compares the Word of God to honey, to a multifaceted diamond, and to gold. And I simply want to tell you that the Bible yields its sweetness, the diamond yields its beauty, and the gold yields its wealth to those of us who will take it seriously as the Word of God and pray and study and love and talk our way through it.